scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 9. Please stand. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. No, I've lost my place. Um, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land, shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he, he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Grace and peace. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Steve Kamer, and uh, I am in the whole seminary process under care of the Presbyterian. So I do thank Vince for giving me the opportunity to preach. And uh, just a small plug, along with the cars and my wife, we do lead the North City Group. So uh, I don't know if I want to say it's the coolest city group. Well, I want to say it, but I'm not going to say it. Um, but if you're looking for a city group, uh, we'd love to have you. It's an awesome one to join. So uh, we are going to be looking at this awesome passage from 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is the story of King David and Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is a hard word to say. Uh, if you want to practice it like I have been, you can. I do it in front of the mirror to try to get it down. Hopefully I won't mess it up. But it isn't just a story of King David and Mephibosheth. There it goes. Um, it's also a story of God and his character, his intentions toward us, and his countenance toward us. And even more, it's a story of how easily we can get that wrong. How easily we can misunderstand God's intentions towards us, just like Mephibosheth does 
in this story. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this perfectly in uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, many of you maybe have read these or seen the movies, but uh, The Magician's Nephew is kind of a prequel to The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, basically, one of the main characters, Diggory, gets himself in one of these, I don't think the word multiverse existed yet when he, when he wrote this, but gets himself in one of these multiverses and he wakes up the evil witch. Kind of out of his arrogance and pride and kind of not caring, he, he wakes up the witch and she ends up coming with him, kind of sneaking a ride to Narnia. And this is the evil witch that is going to go about creating evil and problems and chaos for years to come. This is the evil witch of which it said, uh, it's always winter, never Christmas. I never got that because I love winter. And I, I can, I mean, I love Christmas too, but for C.S. Lewis, that would be a big deal. But he goes around, she, she has created all this chaos, and Diggory brought her there. And there's a point where he, he's coming and he's talking to Aslan. Aslan created Narnia, he represents God. He's the giant lion of Narnia. And he comes before him and he knows he's messed up. He knows that the witch is there because of him, and he's sorry, and he's coming before the lion, but he also has a bigger problem that he's thinking about. His mom at home is sick, she's dying, and he's desperate for something to help her. So this is the way he comes before Aslan. He says, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tiny face was bent down near his own, and, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. What an awesome picture, right? But what had happened? I think we can relate to this. Diggory had gotten stuck looking at the claws. He'd been stuck looking at the claws. He'd been scared. He'd been distant. But when he looked up, at God's face, God's face, had, or, I'm sorry, Aslan's face, Aslan's face had come down and he saw Aslan's true heart, his true intentions towards him. The claws were there. They were a part of Aslan. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. But for Diggory, they weren't a part he was ever going to have to face. And he was confused about what Aslan thought of him. And I think we can do that often. Maybe you've been taught wrong. I certainly was as a child. But even in our fallenness, we tend to look at the claws instead of God's true heart. And the claws don't just mean punishment. The claws are a system by which we think we have to do enough in order to avoid those claws. A system by which we think if we can keep the lion happy, we'll never have to deal with them. And I want to go into that a little bit this morning because it's really kind of paradigm shifting whether or not you get this right. Because I don't know where everybody is this morning. You might be here checking out Christianity. Maybe someone dragged you here 
and, and you're wondering what this is all about. Maybe you've been wounded before and you came in here to see what grace and peace might be about. And many of us, we would call ourselves Christians. We have placed our faith in Christ. And one thing that is extremely important to us is pursuing God. We want to pursue God, right? We want to grow in our relationship with God. We were just talking about this, uh, Kendra and I, with one of our kids yesterday, the importance of pursuing God. But if you get this wrong, if you get God's intentions towards you wrong, are you really going to want to pursue him? If you think that your relationship is really based on what you do, and if you can do enough and really trying to avoid the claws, if you will, who's going to want to pursue a God like that? Who's going to want to have a relationship with a God like that? Uh, you think of service to our great king. You think of obedience. There's a verse in, in 1 John chapter 5 where, where God says, My commands are not burdensome. If you have to obey God to avoid those claws, that's a burden. That's a horrible burden. Who, who would want to be about that? If you want to serve a God like that, you might do it for a while. You might be really self-disciplined, but it's not going to carry you into the life God has for you. It's not going to carry you over a lifetime. And I want to ask yourself this morning, how might you do this? Because here's the thing. If you're not pursuing God, you will be pursuing something else. We're made to pursue. And if you're not pursuing him, you will be serving some, pursuing something else. If you're not serving him, you indeed will be serving something else. Maybe you're pursuing something to cover up this inadequacy you feel. Maybe you're sort of running around with a deep sense that if I was really honest with myself, if God can be really honest with me, there's just low-grade disappointment that's sort of governing our relationship and anger with me. And you want to cover that up. You're not going to want to have anything to do with that. So you pursue something else that might give you the life that you're not getting there. And that could be all sorts of things, things of this world. It can be the lust of the flesh or money, greed, your own self-interest, your own selfishness. And I think one thing we can struggle with a lot is kind of we can't bear the weight of this trying to perform all the time when we kind of slip into a place of apathy. I know that's really easy for myself to fall into, where you just think, I'm going to do this life by myself. I go to church on Sunday. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about God during the week, because if I do, I'm going to have to deal with the clause. You're dealing with the fact that it's so easy to get God wrong. So I want you to kind of keep some of that in mind as we go forward into this passage, as we look at the story of Mephibosheth and David and see how might it change everything if you were seeing God for who God says he is. I know for me, like the, any self-centeredness or anger that I've, I've dealt with even in this week, even think of the things that we confessed just a few minutes ago, how might it have changed if God was really the way I'm about to show you he is from the scriptures, okay? So we're going to jump into this story of Mephibosheth and David, and even think as I'm going through it, how might this reflect to the larger narrative of God and his people? A little bit of background here. David, of course, is king. At this time, he's taken over. Saul was king before him, and he has 
kind of risen, risen to the zenith of his reign, of his kingdom. This is about as high as he's ever going to get. Many of his enemies have been put down. He is leading in righteousness. This is just two chapters away from when David's going to fall into sin with Bathsheba and end up killing her husband Uriah. But he does, you know, he does experience restoration and forgiveness, but his kingdom never gets back to where it is right now. So he looks around and he has time and he wants to fulfill a promise that he had made long before. And we see it in the very first verse. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was David's best friend. They have one of the most famous and awesome friendships of the whole Bible. And Jonathan was Saul, the previous king's son. And back in first chapter, in first Samuel chapter 20, David and Jonathan make a covenant. There was a practice back then. Everybody knew about it. Jonathan was keenly aware of it. But when a new king would take the throne, he would always wipe out everyone of the previous king's line. He would kill anyone who was related to that previous king so that they wouldn't have a chance to come and have a claim to the throne. He would wipe out everybody. Jonathan was keenly aware of this. Jonathan was also keenly aware that David would one day be king. So he comes to David and he said, will you make an oath? Will you make a covenant that you won't do this when you become king? And David was happy to do that. And a key word here in this verse is the word kindness. He's looking to show kindness to anyone left of his family. Now, kindness doesn't carry a great sense of what this word really means. You've maybe heard this before. I know Vince has talked about this before, but kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for God's deep covenant love. It's his deepest, promised, decided upon love that God can have. Often, it's translated steadfast love. In fact, when Jonathan asked David to make this covenant, he comes and he says, will you show me your said? Will you show me, and the translators translate it, steadfast love. So David is here and he's ready to do it. And he said, is there anyone left? Is there anyone that I can show this kindness to, this steadfast love to? So they call the servant Ziba. They bring him out and he asks him the same question. Is there anyone still left? And Ziba said, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king says, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Um, Lodabar is important. I tried to look it up once and find it on a map. It took me a long time to do it because Lodabar is in the middle of nowhere. Lodabar is in the middle of nowhere. In fact, it's, it's not on many maps because if people who, like, if we considered that there was a town out here that's in the middle of nowhere, they would consider the middle of nowhere to be Lodabar. It's a place that you would go to escape. It's a place that you would go if you didn't want anyone to ever find you. And that was the situation with Mephibosheth because he knew he was of the line of the previous king. And he knew that his life was forfeit if the king ever found out that he was there. But rather, he thought, he believed his life was forfeit. He didn't understand David. He didn't understand the, the king's intentions towards him. 
What made it worse is he was crippled in both feet. When Mephibosheth was a little baby, his nurse was fleeing the city as it was under siege and dropped him. And he broke both of his feet and he was permanently crippled in his feet. From later on in the story, we know that he had a son. So he's trying to take care of his son. He's crippled in both feet. And back then, being crippled wasn't the same as it is today. He would have been considered nothing. He was the lowest on the totem pole in their culture. He had no way to make money. He would have only been able to beg. He was only dependent on other people. He couldn't even flee if the king came looking for him because he, he couldn't run away. And he had his son who he really couldn't protect as well. And so you know that every day that passes, he lives in sort of either a mild or severe terror that one day the king would find him. And then the day happens. His worst nightmare comes true. He hears the knock, knock, knock. It's the king's people. It's the king's servants. And they're taking him away to meet the king. And you can imagine what that little journey to Jerusalem might have been like. He would have been terrified. He would have considered that he's coming to die. He might have been going through in his head over and over again, what can I say? What can I do to, to gain or garner the mercy of the king so that I don't die? Maybe I can tell him, oh, I, I'm, I'm handicapped, I'm crippled, there's nothing I can ever do. Or I have this son, please let me raise him. Who will take care of him? And he's going over it, over and over, and he shows up. And this is how the story plays out. This is really cool. He gets there. David says, Mephibosheth. Just common greeting probably is what it's considered. And he answered him, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, here's the first three words he heard. Do not fear. Do not fear. What do you think might have been going through David's, or Mephibosheth's mind when he heard that? Like, like what? What? But right away it continues. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I mean, this would have been the very last thing he thought he was going to hear. And remember, he wouldn't have heard the word kindness. He would have heard the word steadfast love. He would have heard, I'm going to, not I will, he said, I'm going to show you steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then it really ramps up. He says this, and I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What just happened here is pretty insane. David says, I'm going to give you all of the land of Saul. Now, Saul was king, right? Would have a king had a lot of land? I looked this up. It's a ton. <laughs> Saul would have had a ton of land. It was actually David's now, and he gives it all to Mephibosheth. Now, land back then was a big deal. It was riches. It was status. It was part of the community. To have land was to have everything. He just took him from poverty to riches, but it got better. He said, you will eat at my table. This is probably even more profound and even deeper. To eat at the king's table, to eat at anyone's table back then was a sign of friendship and intimacy. To eat at the king's table as his son, is what the text later said. He ended up eating there as his son. He had a place at the king's table. Not only that, it was a place of power. It was a place of political power because the king's table is the place where decisions were made. It's the place where the power resided and he would have actually had the king's ear when it came to political decisions. 
And he just went from being like the lowest person on the totem pole. No one had any concern for him to being one of the most honored rich people in all of the kingdom of Israel. And get this, what did Mephibosheth do to earn this? Did he serve as a faithful servant of, of the kingdom? No. He was hiding. What did he even think of the king? He didn't, he didn't think anything good of the king whatsoever. He was terrified of the king. In fact, he would have been considered the enemy of the king because all previous people of the, of all people of the line of the previous king would have been considered enemies. Anyone would have thought of him as an enemy. This is one of the biggest showings of grace you will ever see. He deserved none of it, and it was lavished on him. And as I asked before, I kind of said, how, how would we view this in the bigger narrative of God and his people? Because we certainly see it here. We're a lot like Mephibosheth, aren't we? And we need to see God's true character just as he did. And what we see here in this story is God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. We see that he's a merciful father. And we see that God is a restorer. First of all, you know, we do see God reflected in the story as David had sought to keep a covenant. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the one capable of carrying out his promises, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. God is a covenant-keeping God. Uh, I'm, I use the phrase in Christ a lot. I'm going to keep using it. And what I mean by that is that if you're in Christ, you're someone who has passed from death to life. You have placed your faith in Jesus. You believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay the price for your sins. And you've been made new. You've been given a new heart. And you are the person who loves him and keeps his commands. God makes that true. God keeps his covenant to you. Exodus 34, 6. This is God talking about himself. He says, I'm a merciful God, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed, steadfast love, and faithfulness. What does this mean? This means that any promise or declaration that you've ever read in scripture or learned about in a Bible study or heard in a sermon will come true, is true. There's no way it won't. Every single one you've ever heard. I'm going to go through some. There's billions of these. I'm going to go through just a few. Probably not actually billions. That's how good we're But I'm going to go through a few of these. And I want you to kind of think about some of the, some of the maybe the sins you confessed earlier in our time of confession. Think about some of the ways maybe you tend to be apathetic or some of the ways that everything would change if you understood at a deep level some of these. Here's a famous one from Lamentations. The steadfast love, again, has said, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is starting to look, this is not the clause. This is God's true heart. 
This is his face as described by him. Hebrews 13, 5, another famous one. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This is not the God of the clause that will never leave you, never forsake you. Because if it was, it wouldn't be that much of a comfort. It wouldn't be that great of a promise. No, this is the God of steadfast love. This is the God whose mercies never cease. This one, somehow, as I look back, tends to work its way into most of my sermons. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is inappropriate for you to be concentrated on the clause. You will never, ever, ever face the clause if you are in Christ. Now, if you aren't in Christ, there is a little bit of a caveat here. If you aren't in Christ, it is appropriate to be thinking about those clause. Because if Jesus didn't pay the price for your sins, eventually you will pay the price for your sins. But the offer, I want you to concentrate even more on the offer. The offer is the love of God, the steadfast love of God, the God whose mercies never end, the God in whom you can find life, the only place you can actually find life. Thinking about God's face, there's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. This one's great. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We will see fully forever God's face as it truly is. We'll never see the claws again when it comes to the kingdom. We'll never even think of them again. And thinking of God as a loving and merciful Father, think of 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We're like Mephibosheth. We've been brought into the table as a son of our great king. I have a silly little story. I, I don't even know if I should tell this, uh, but I think it'll, it'll help this stick. Early on in our marriage, Kendra and I, we'd only been married maybe two or three months, and uh, we were still kind of getting used to sleeping in the same bed together, sharing a bed together. And I remember, I barely remember, Kendra remembers it better, right in the middle of the night, I've never done this since, but I, but I jumped up out of a deep sleep, and I looked out the window that was a, behind our bed, and I said, it's like a bunch of little Steves running all over the place. <laughs> and then I fell down and went back to sleep. And she's laying there like, what in the heck just happened? And for the sake of this sermon, I think I got it wrong. We're like a bunch of little Mephibosheths running around. Right? I know that's kind of silly, but I think you'll remember this tomorrow. It'll stick. We are little Mephibosheths. We are the sons of God. And it came through love he lavished on us. Honestly, I could go on and on. I have several more written here. The time I won't do so. But this is our God, as described in his word. How does that change the way we look at him? How does that change the way we seek to serve? How does that change the way we even obey? Now, the last thing I want to say is uh, we serve a God who is a restorer. There's a super curious final sentence 
of this uh, chapter 9. It says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And now comes the kind of unusual six words that end the story. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now he was lame in both of his feet. We already knew that. The story already had that. Why would we be told again? And I believe it's a reminder. It's a reminder that even though everything had been restored to Mephibosheth, even though he was now brought into the king's table and he'd been made rich with the king, not everything had been restored yet. There was still brokenness in the world. He still lived in a broken world. He was still crippled in both of his feet. And I think we can identify with that, right? All of this is true about us in Christ, yet we still live in a broken world. We still have the temptation to look at God and treat him as sort of think that he interacts with us the way we interact with other people. We're still tempted to take the sort of horizontal way we as humans interact with each other and put it on God. We still have a lot of questions. We still live in a broken world, but it won't be that way forever. There won't always be death. There won't always be sorrow. There won't always be the isolation and loneliness that Luke prayed about earlier. Things will be made right. 2 Peter 3.13 talks about this. It's not one that's usually gone to, but uh, Peter says this, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All things will be made right. This is a promise. Remember, it's a covenant-keeping God. All things will be made right. And this is what's fascinating. Peter's actually big on this. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, My aim is to stir... I write these things to you to stir you up by way of reminder so that you will remember the predictions and promises of God because Peter understood our proclivity to forget them. And he knew that if they were brought back to our attention over and over again, if we remembered them, it would make all the difference in the world. And that's what we need. That's kind of the application of this. We need, because we forget, because we have that propensity to look at the clause and the relationship of performance, we need to look... We need to be reminded of who God really is. And we do that through being here this morning. We do that through worship earlier. I mean, it was all over those songs, all over the place. We do it in hearing God's word preached. We do it in prayer. We do it by reminding each other. That's what the city groups are about. That's what coming here this morning is about. That's what I want you guys to do for each other. It's what I need from you. It's what you need from each other. To be reminded of that over and over again. All things will be made right. The pain will come to an end. Uh, this is captured perfectly, more so perfectly. Go read Revelation 21. It's all over the place there. And uh, Phil Wickham captures this in a song. I was listening to it the whole time I was writing this. It's called Beautiful. And he says towards the end, it's like a crescendo of the live version. It's on Spotify. You should check it out. He says, for when we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, 
We'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. It will be beautiful. And that's what I want to get across this morning. God is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. It will be made right. And it will be made right because of Jesus. We always have to get back to him. He is the beautiful one. It will be made right because of what we just celebrated last Sunday in the resurrection and the Friday before that in Good Friday where Jesus died on the cross. His resurrection guaranteed that the covenant will be kept, that this will happen. You know, on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of our sins. He had a place at the table like we do, like Mephibosheth did, but he lost it so that we could have it. On the cross, you know, Jesus from eternity past in perfection had the perfect view of God's face, not his claws, and he lost it as God turned his back on him as he bore all of our sins. On the cross, God saw the, Jesus took the claws fully so that we'll never have to. And I want you to, to be tossing around. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what you're celebrating. That's the restoration that Jesus brought us. And that's what we need to be reminding each other of. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are beautiful. You are wonderful. And I just pray that each of us now would be blown away with who you are, your countenance towards us, and what you have done. As we come to the table, we pray that this would be a way that we're reminded. I pray that we would be reminded of it often by your word, by prayer. And I pray that as a church, we would remind each other of it all the time. I thank you for being our covenant-keeping God, our restorer, and our merciful Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.